chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house would you build me? What would serve me as a place of residence? And now, as we're getting into the millennium, we're going to see that the Lord is going to have a temple there, to which He comes. The question is, can God be confined in an earthly temple? The answer is no. The heavens are His throne, the earth is His footstool. The whole earth is His footstool. Why confine Him to a little tiny building, relatively speaking, upon the earth? You can't do that. He says, what house would you build? What kind of house? What could serve Him as a place of residence? Think He's going to confine Himself here when He comes? No, but He will dwell in the temple at some point, or sometimes. He's not going to sit there on His throne in the temple all the time. He's got the whole cosmos that's His creation, to which He ministers, being the highest level of the spiritual ladder. He ministers to everybody. But, as in the days of Moses, the Lord appeared to Moses, whenever Moses needed to speak to God, the Lord came in the cloud of glory that rested upon the tabernacle and spoke with Moses. He spoke with Isaiah and other prophets, but he wasn't there all the time waiting for Isaiah to come and uh, go through the veil to see him. He wasn't there for the high priest. As the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies, the Lord wasn't there waiting for him. The high priest pronounced the name, and then the Lord appeared. The Lord came. It's not a confining house for him. Yes, he will appear there when there is a need, but there's no indication that he'll be sitting there on his throne day and night for a thousand years. It seems kind of ridiculous that people have that kind of conception. What house will you build me? What would serve me as a place of residence? It's only a token of the real thing, a mere reflection. These are all things my hand has made. He's made the elements, he's made the wood. He's made the marble, the precious stones, the gold and the silver for the implements. You can't confine God within the small space of the elements that he's made. On the other hand, it also says, these are all things my hand has made. First of all, we take it literally that God has made it, but the hand is also a metaphor describing the Lord's servant, implying that perhaps in some pre-mortal condition, the Lord's servant, and by implication other servants too, assisted in this very creation, this creation of the earth, at least. And thus all came into being. They came into being when he made them. And yet, I have regard for those who are of a humble and contrite spirit, and who are vigilant for my word. What has that got to do with the building of a house, a place for the Lord to dwell in? The answer is that he dwells with those who are of a humble and contrite spirit who are vigilant for his word. The cross-reference there is chapter 57, verse 15. That's what he says there. Thus says the Lord who is highly exalted, who abides forever, whose name is sacred, I dwell on high in the holy place, and with him who is humble and lowly in spirit, refreshing the spirits of the lowly, reviving the hearts of the humble. So we ourselves, in other words, are temples or houses of God, of his spirit at least. And when his spirit dwells in us, He revives us and refreshes us or regenerates us. For them, the Lord has regard, special regard. What does he do with the proud, on the other hand? The proud, he humbles them. And if they won't be humbled, he destroys them. But once we're humble and contrite, contrite meaning penitent, in a repentant mode, who are vigilant for his word, in other words, his word, which we receive through the prophet of God, the prophets of God, which we receive in the books that they have written, the scriptures, which is our spiritual food, which guides us on the right path, teaches us the ways of God and how he thinks, 
teaches us God's will for us, if we're vigilant for His Word, in other words, we're applying it in our lives, we want more, we're living by the Word of God, then He has regard to us, and then He will dwell in us. We become temples of God, of His Holy Spirit. And then the contrast with another group of people, but whoever slaughters an ox is as one who kills a man, and whoever sacrifices a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever presents a grain offering is as one who offers swine's blood. Whoever burns incense is one who venerates idols. Those who are doing those kinds of things, offering sacrifices of animals, like the lamb or an ox, which were legitimate forms of sacrifice under the law of Moses, when the animal was a proxy for the man who sinned or transgressed. Under the law of justice, if he transgressed against God with a serious transgression, he was guilty of death. If he sacrificed an animal, the animal died in his place. It was a proxy for him. With the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, those animal sacrifices became redundant, except perhaps in one or two lone instances of symbolic restoration. They became redundant because they were not anyway themselves atoning sacrifices. They were only prefiguring or looking forward to the great and eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so killing animal sacrifices after that fact, after the fact of the atonement of Jesus Christ, is not only redundant, but it's also mocking God. Whoever slaughters an ox is one who kills a man. It's like committing murder. Whoever sacrifices a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. An act of perversity, or perhaps even cult, satanic cult. Whoever presents a grain offering, which was also legitimate anciently under the law of Moses, is one who offers swine's blood which was an unclean animal and was an abomination to God and therefore was a provocation. It's what the Greeks did in the temple in Judea to provoke the God of Israel. Whoever burns incense, which was done by the priests anciently, is one who venerates idols. Those things will no longer be necessary because men will be so filled with the Spirit of God that those things will seem like shadows of the past, the practices of a bygone age. Just as they have preferred to go their own ways, their souls delighting in their abominations. And those things become their abominations, and their own ways are abominations. We must follow God's ways. Their own ways is parallel with abominations. And it's a preference, it's a choice. They delight in these things, showing their really perverse condition. So will I prescribe intrigues for them. In other words, they're going to get a reward of these actions. I will bring upon them the thing they dread, which was their destruction. In a more specific sense, the kind of destruction that's being threatened in that day and age. Maybe nuclear war, maybe the king of Assyria is rattling his sabers and getting his missiles ready for the attack. Who knows what the scenario will be. It'll be something that people are dreading at the time. And we've seen that in other places of the book of Isaiah. That very thing that they have dreaded is going to catch up with them, with this particular group of people. In other words, these are part of the Sodom and Gomorrah category. So will I prescribe intrigues for them. Why? Because they have been practicing all kinds of intrigues, machinations, and now the Lord is going to give them measure for measure. For when I called, no one responded. When I spoke, none gave heed. They did what was evil in my eyes. They chose to do what was not my will. The same as in chapter 65, verse 12, which we just read. The Lord called and spoke in that brief time period before the millennium, before the judgment of the world, and he spoke through his servants and called people to repentance and to renew the covenant relationship with God so that they might be blessed. 
so that they might be prepared to meet God and enjoy the millennial age. Among this group, no one responded, none gave heed. They did what was evil in my eyes or broke the covenant and chose to do what was not my will. It was a deliberate choice to go against God. And the consequence for that in chapter 65 was that great division between the servants being blessed and this group being cursed. In fact, in chapter 65 it says, My servants shall eat indeed while you shall hunger. My servants shall drink indeed while you shall thirst. It leaves the you anonymous. Servants are identified. And the you is some anonymous group. Although there were God's people, or potentially God's people, they rejected him, they became alienated from the covenant, they could no longer be called God's people. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who are vigilant for his word. There's that word vigilant again, which we saw in verse 2. If you're vigilant for the word of the Lord, you'll hear the word. You'll want more of it, because it will help you ascend the ladder. It will help you in your spiritual progression. Hear the word of the Lord, you who are vigilant for his word. Your brethren who abhor you and exclude you because of my name say. And this lets you know that this group that is vigilant, that are of a humble and contrite spirit, as verse 2 says, who are the temples of God or of his spirit, that they are being abhorred and excluded or ostracized in some way, excommunicated in the religion perhaps, or disfellowshipped in some way, made to be outcasts of society by some who have the power to do that. Those in authority, who are these? Brethren, people in authority among your own people who exercise unrighteous dominion over you. Your brethren who abhor you. That is an enormous anomaly that it should be coming from that source. But it's not surprising because it happened in the days of Jesus Christ and Caiaphas the high priest. Caiaphas condemned Christ to death. He ostracized him. He abhorred him, excluded him. The same with the apostles of Jesus' day. Their own brethren among the Jews were the ones who put them to death, who excommunicated them, put them out of the synagogue. Your brethren who abhor you, we also see that in Isaiah that the people abhor the servant. Chapter 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised as a person who is abhorred by his nation, a mere servant to those in authority. But first, before the servant is empowered, because the next line says, rulers shall rise up when they see you, heads of state shall prostrate themselves in front of the servant, when the Lord empowers him. At first, the servant is abhorred and despised by his own people, by his own nation. And so it is here. These people who are in authority of their own nation abhor these servants, the ones who are vigilant for his word, the ones who are of a humble and contrite spirit. What happens to the one happens to the group, and that's the pattern in Isaiah. The one is a paradigm for the others. If they want to be servants, they will know ahead of time that that's what they're going to get. Those are the kind of responses they're going to get from certain types of people. And you go into that situation with your eyes open. You say, okay, I'm prepared for that. I'm willing to pay that price. I want to refine my allegiance to God, upgraded, if that's what it takes. That's okay. Your brethren who abhor you and exclude you because of my name say, let the Lord manifest your glory that we may see cause for your joy but it is they who shall suffer shame. These ones who are in authority, who are ostracizing, are asking for some kind of sign. They see these zealots, these people who are zealous for God, vigilant for his word and so forth. They don't believe that the Lord is coming imminently. Let the Lord manifest his glory or his presence. Glory and presence are interchangeable ideas in Hebrew. Let him give us some kind of sign that you're for real, that the thing that you're believing about his coming it's so close and so imminent, is near. 
that we may see cause for your joy. Why are you so happy all the time? Why are you so joyful and so zealous? You embarrass us. And so they persecute the elect of God. It says, but it is they who shall suffer shame. They put these elect of God to shame in persecuting them. Then they themselves are shamed in the end. It's the self-exaltation before humiliation that Isaiah talks about. The opposite of humiliation before exaltation. God's way is to be humiliated and then exalted, as Christ was himself. Humiliated before Caiaphas, before his own people, before the Romans. And then when he comes in glory, he'll be exalted. He comes as an exalted being. And so it happens with the Lord's servant. As I just read in chapter 49, he's abhorred and despised before rulers rise up before him and prostrate themselves before him. He goes through humiliation before his exaltation. And so do these. In chapter 61, verse 7, we read, Because their shame was twofold, and shouted insults were their lot. Therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold, and everlasting joy be theirs. They first must go through persecution. And that persecution and humiliation and ostracism serves to sanctify them. It's a price they pay. It's a sacrifice they make to God, and they're willing to do so. Not just for themselves. They've long since repented of their sins. They're not suffering that because of their own sins. They're suffering it for the sake of others. They're suffering it for the sake of those whose saviors they become. Just as King Hezekiah suffered immense suffering, and then the Lord blessed him by healing him and also promising to deliver his people from the Assyrians and that great miracle of deliverance. These ones who are ostracized and who suffer, suffer as proxies for others. And that's why the Lord says that he delivers these others for the sake of his servants, for their sake, because their prayers to God are effectual on behalf of those lower on the spiritual ladder. They suffer, they're willing to go through all of this and pay a price. So the Lord respects that, he has a regard for them. He responds to them. He gives heed to them. He fulfills the words of his servants, it says in Isaiah, of his messengers. Let the Lord manifest his glory, that we may see cause for your joy, but it is they who shall suffer shame. They will suffer shame in the end, even though they're shaming the elect now. Verse 6, Hark a tumult from the city and noise from the temple. It is the voice of the Lord paying his enemies what is due them. Who are these enemies? Are these very brethren that are doing the persecuting? That's how chapter 1 starts off. Who are the enemies of God's people that he destroys? The wicked of his own people, the ones in leadership positions in particular. Hear the word of the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Give heed to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You rulers are renegades, accomplices of robbers. Criminals and sinners shall be altogether shattered, and those who forsake the Lord are annihilated. Speaking of the leadership and the masses both. Where does that retribution begin when the Lord comes to pay his enemies what is due them? It starts with his own house, the noise from the temple. Literally the temple, also the people in general, a tumult from the city, the main city, some kind of controversy, some kind of uproar, disturbance. Is the voice of the Lord paying his enemies what is due them? Like the voice of the Lord was heard on Mount Sinai, rebuking the wicked, and they ran far away. Now the voice of the Lord is also a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. And in the book of Malachi, it says that the messenger will come to refine the sons of Levi, or those who are serving as priests. Where do they serve as priests? In the temple. The voice of the Lord could also be the king of Assyria. He's also a voice, not necessarily the voice of the Lord, but he's a voice of the wicked. The wicked are left in his care, 
that's perhaps another level we could look at it. Verse 7, before she is in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. The son is that servant and son in Isaiah, who prepares the way before the coming of the Lord, who is the voice of the Lord in the temple, who is the preparer of the way, who is the light to the nations to bring them out of a long darkness. He's the one who lifts the people of God up to a level of righteousness so that they may endure God's presence, who prepares them to meet God as Moses did who delivers them in an exodus. When does he arrive on the scene? Well, obviously in the context of this noise from the temple. The Lord intervening to deal with these false brethren, these authorities who are persecuting God's elect. In that context, the woman gives birth. Who is she? Zion, the woman Zion. As soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children in the next verse. Zion is that group of people who are righteous people the ones who are in a repentant mode. If she gives birth, then she gives birth to someone who is higher on the spiritual ladder than herself. It's a new birth. It's someone who comes out of that category and is reborn, was born again on a higher level than that. And that is the servant in Isaiah. It's the same individual as the male child to which the woman Zion gives birth in the book of Revelation. She flees into the wilderness for three and a half years after she gives birth to her male child. This is exactly the situation in the book of Isaiah. The three and a half years is the time of the exodus and wandering in the wilderness. The male child is the Lord's servant. He's born before the time of judgment, before she's in labor, it says. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. The labor is the day of judgment, when the people of God go through this horrendous ordeal of refinement, and becoming refined through the ordeal of the Day of Judgment, the group that we've been talking about, the middle group. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. That, of course, is the word link to chapter 9, verse 6. And to us, the child is born, a son appointed, who will shoulder the burden of government. In Isaiah, that son, through word links, links to the servant, chapter 42 and chapter 49. That's called the birth pangs of the Messiah in Judaism. When the people of God go into a situation of travail, like the Israelites in Egypt, who served under hard bondage to the Egyptians. When the people of God are in travail, Moses was born as a deliverer. And then Moses turns around and delivers the people, or those who gave him birth. The same thing with King David. The people of God were in travail, and they were about to be wiped out by the Philistines. King David was born, and he became the deliverer. The same thing with King Hezekiah. When the Assyrians lay siege to Jerusalem had overrun the whole of the land except that city. The people were in travail, and they gave birth to a deliverer, Hezekiah. And he delivers the people. He turns around and delivers the woman. That's the situation here. Who has heard the like? Who has seen such things? Can the earth labor but a day, and a nation be born at once? For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. First he is born, and then the rest of them are born, the other children. Zion gave birth to her children. He's born. Out of Zion come other servants, as we've seen, and sons of God, who assist the one servant. John says 144,000 of them. They are born also in that day. That day is the day of judgment. That's when the ordeal begins. They're born in that day. The servant is born before that day of judgment. And Zion herself is born in that day. Because you have the spiritual ladder and you have all of these categories, 
In that day, it's a time when everybody is ascending the ladder. Those who are on a Jacob-Israel level will be born as a Zion and Jerusalem category. Those who are a Zion and Jerusalem category will be born as a servant-son category. And those who are servant-son category will be born as serf category. It's all going on at the same time. The whole situation is in flux because of the pressure of that day. And part of that pressure is those authorities pressuring or ostracizing the righteous. Part of the pressure is the king of Assyria and all of that scenario, the political scenario that's going on. In Isaiah, the political and the spiritual are always on a par. There's extreme wickedness on the one hand and extreme righteousness on the other, both in the political field and in the religious field, both for good and for evil. When the king of Assyria comes along, he being the most evil, you also have the counterpart, you have the most good, both the Lord's servant. When you have all of these wicked brethren, you also have righteous brethren. The wicked allow the righteous to rise higher because of the things they have to go through and suffer at the hands of these wicked. The wicked are given a chance and they fail the test and they end up humiliated and shamed and ostracized themselves, cut off from God's presence. The very thing that they're doing or thinking they're doing to the righteous. This labor of the earth, can the earth labor by the day? This huge labor is going on. The whole earth goes into labor. But it's also Zion that's going into labor. Everything is in labor. God is in labor. The servant is in labor. The servants of God are in labor. Babylon is in labor, as we saw in chapter 13, but only brings forth wind, produces nothing but an abomination. Can the earth labor by the day, that day of judgment, and the nation be born at once? That nation is the new nation of Zion. The people of Zion are born in a day. That category of people are born as a nation, as a people, in the day of judgment. All at once, within a very brief period of time. Of course, there must have been a precondition. There must have been some kind of emerging state that they were in that allowed them to be lifted to that level. They were not wicked people to begin with, necessarily. They just became more refined at that time through the instrumentality of the Lord's servant and the servants of God. As soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children, and those are the servants. So that's another level, that's a higher level. And then there's the son who came first, of course. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says the Lord, verse 9. When it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it, says your God. This is like a pregnancy. It doesn't just go on and on forever. There comes a time when there is a birth. There has to be a birth. A pregnancy may go over the time, but it can't go on forever. It implies here that there are some resisting that idea. God wants to bring forth this people Zion, or these children of Zion, or this servant and son, and there are those who are opposing that idea, saying, this is not of God. We saw that earlier. There are those who are saying, whatever you're begetting is not of God. As in chapter 45, woe to those who say to their father, what have you begotten? Or to the woman, what have you born? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, their maker, will you ask me for signs concerning my children or dictate to me about the deeds of my hands? He's the one who's doing all of this. God is. And there's a group that's opposing God, in effect. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says the Lord, when it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it? Says your God, your covenant God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all who love her. Join in her celebration, all who mourn for her. Meaning the birth has happened and there's jubilant celebration because of it. There was mourning first because of what she had to endure, what these people had to endure. And there is the Jerusalem category. Well, it's the same thing as the Zion category. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All who love her. Meaning there are some who don't love her, 
go another direction or oppose her. Join in her celebration. The celebration happens after the birth. From now on, nurse contentedly at her consoling breasts, draw at your pleasure from the abundance of her bosom. And this is part of Isaiah's imagery, how he takes the life cycle process from birth through lactation, through childhood, teenage years, marriage, rebellion, divorce, and through death and resurrection and remarriage. There are those who were persecuted who are now going to be consoled. There are those who were ostracized who are now going to be received back and comforted, like a child is comforted when he nurses from his mother. And also the abundance of the bosom and drawing at one's pleasure, that is covenant blessing. There's an abundance to eat. There's a sufficiency. And that's the millennial age, the time of great peace. For thus says the Lord, verse 12, See, I will extend peace to her like a river, the bounty of the nations like a stream in flood. The peace like a river is a word linked to chapter 48, where it says, Had you but obeyed my commandments, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Speaking about a group that was cut off from God's presence because they did not merit this condition. They did not merit living on into the millennium. Those who do, people of Zion or Jerusalem, their peace will be like a river. The bounty of the nations, like a stream in flood. The nations will come to them like a stream in flood. That's a word linked to chapter 2, where the nations stream to Zion. Also chapter 60, verses 5 and 11, where it speaks about the return of God's people to Zion from among the nations. We have a group then that's in Zion, the Zion-Jerusalem category, to which another category, after it's all over, after the Day of Judgment, at the beginning of the millennium, returns from out there to Zion. Remember the group that we talked about that did not participate in the Exodus, that was getting its repentance process together, that was going through the refiner's fire? They return from among the nations, or they return as nations out there to Zion after the Day of Judgment. The first group, the elect, or the holy and valiant ones, they individually went through the refiner's process before the Day of Judgment. They go in the Exodus. They are protected in that day. The second group that has need to repent, does repent, is refined, then they return from out there, they're a much larger group, they return to Zion. And the third group, of course, doesn't return at all. They're destroyed by the king of Assyria. So when it says, I'll extend peace to her like a river, this is the group at home now, the one that's spared the destruction or the judgment. They're the ones now to whom these nations stream as in a flood. Then shall you nurse and be carried upon the hip and dandle on the knees. This is infanthood. As one who is comforted by his mother, I will comfort you. For Jerusalem you shall be comforted. So basically there are two gatherings spoken of in the book of Isaiah. One, the gathering in an exodus led by the servants, and last of all, a gathering and linking up with them by others who were out there during the judgment. Your heart shall rejoice to see it, your limbs flourish like sprouting grass, when the hand of the Lord shall be manifest among his servants and his rage among his enemies. In that day of judgment, when there's deliverance for the righteous and destruction for the wicked, the intermediate category will in the end rejoice too, because they thought they had missed the boat, and they had, but they still survived, and there was still deliverance there that eventually they participated in, and their hearts too rejoiced, and their limbs flourished like sprouting grass. They were regenerated physically. When the hand of the Lord shall be manifest among his servants, 
meaning the servant, the right hand of God, is known among his servants, just like Moses and the 70 elders, the one servant and the other servants who assist him and help him and work together with him. And his rage among his enemies, that's the king of Assyria who personifies God's rage, he's manifested among the wicked, including the enemies of God's own people. Verse 6, paying his enemies what is due them, who were the false brethren, who were in authority, who excluded the righteous. They are given into the hand of the king of Assyria, into his power. Verse 15, See, the Lord comes with fire, his chariots like a whirlwind, to retaliate in furious anger, to rebuke with conflagrations of fire. For with fire and with his sword shall the Lord execute judgment on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Many meaning the majority. Using Isaiah's tithing imagery, we can guess that about 90% of the earth's population will perish and will be in the wicked category that's destroyed. About 9% of the earth's population will be in the intermediate category. And about 1% of the earth's population will be in the category that's protected through divine intervention. So those slain by the Lord shall be many. Indeed they will, like they were at the flood when most of the world's population was destroyed. With fire and with his sword shall the Lord execute judgment on all flesh. That's with the king of Assyria, through the instrumentality of the king of Assyria, who personifies the fire and the sword. He's given power over all flesh. Executing judgment is justice, the law of justice for them. They didn't repent. He's a world conqueror. He destroys all nations. We've seen that. That happens at the time of his coming. See, the Lord comes with fire. His chariots revolve like a whirlwind to retaliate in furious anger, to rebuke with conflagrations of fire. The fire, the anger, are again personifications of the king of Assyria. He's the one through whom the Lord destroys the wicked. He's the one who burns up the wicked. Conflagrations of fire. Chariots like a whirlwind. Perhaps nuclear weapons. Some kind of Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, as we saw in chapter 13. That's called the coming of the Lord. It's the same idea in the New Testament. The Lord will come as a thief in the night. The thief is the king of Assyria, who does the plundering and spoiling in the book of Isaiah. The coming of the Lord is immediately preceded by this cleansing process of the earth, when the king of Assyria destroys the wicked. When it says, as we read a minute ago, the mountains melting at thy presence, the nations trembling at thy presence, that his presence is, when the Lord's coming is imminent, the king of Assyria is doing his thing. But whatever he does to the wicked, or to others, is also done to himself. And we've seen that happen in the book of Isaiah. He himself ends up being part of this destruction. You see that we're switching back in time here from one situation to another to another. Time is not sequential in the book of Isaiah, as by now you've surely noticed. He just goes back and reiterates the same situation, just using different imagery and different terminology, over and over. Verse 17, As for the cultists who fornicate in the parks, following one in the center, who eat the flesh of swine and prawn and rodents, they with their practices and ideas shall be made an end of, says the Lord. Here we have, again, that cult. He keeps dropping these remarks here and there throughout the book of Isaiah. When you put all of these descriptions together, you get a pretty comprehensive picture of what satanic cult is all about, or lesser versions of the cult. But it's a very prevalent idea in that time period of the judgment. And here it's linked, or appears in the context of God's judgment. God comes to judge through the agency of the king of Assyria, when things come to this head in the society of God's people. It describes probably a cult scene in the parks, not necessarily the town park, but maybe national parks, 
canyonlands, mountains, falling one in the center while fornicating or committing immoral acts, imitating one leader who's the big guy. It has to do with eating unclean foods. Swine, prawn, rodents were all unclean animals in the Law of Moses. But again, not just necessarily physically, but also spiritually. They with their practices and ideas shall be made an end of, says the Lord. That whole category of people disappears from the earth. Their name becomes a curse, as we've seen. They're a Sodom and Gomorrah category whose iniquity is full. And this is a manifestation of their iniquity being full. Verse 18, For I will come to gather all nations and tongues that they may approach and behold my glory. Meaning that there are those out there in the world who now will be gathered. When that destruction of the wicked takes place, there's that middle category left out there and they also will be gathered and behold his glory. Because of the things that they have gone through, the tribulations that they have endured, and the repentance process and refining process that they have gone through, they now too are worthy to behold his glory. And I will set a mark upon them, sending those of them who survived to the nations that had not heard the news concerning me, nor seen my glory, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lod the arches, to Tubal and Yavan, to the distant isles, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and shall bring back all your children from throughout the nations to Jerusalem, my holy mountain, says the Lord, as offerings to the Lord on horses and on chariots, and wagons and on mules and dromedaries, just as the Israelites brought offerings in pure vessels to the house of the Lord, of them likewise I will accept men to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. This concerns then the second gathering that I've been mentioning. The first gathering being the holy ones and valiant ones who gather in an exodus under the Lord's protection to Zion and don't suffer the ravages of that day of judgment. They're totally protected, as it says in chapter 4, as we read. That cloud of glory, it says, will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 talk about that cloud of glory being a protection during that day. But this middle category that survives out there is also going to be gathered. Who gathers them? Why the ones that were gathered the first time under the protection of the cloud? They go out and gather this second category. Just as the servants of the Lord, the one servant and the other servants, gathered the first category. You see how it works? The one servant and the servants who assist him, when they fulfill their mission, they preach repentance, people renew their allegiance to the God of Israel, in the day of judgment, like Lot on the eve of the destruction, is taken out by the angels. So these servants gather out the holy and valiant ones and protect them. Well, God protects them because they have measured up spiritually to merit God's protection because of the servants who minister to them. These servants really, in effect, gather them physically as they first minister to them spiritually. And now, the same thing that those who were gathered the first time they perform the same function to these now who are left out there during the Day of Judgment. I will set a mark upon them. That's the same mark as in the book of Revelation, where they are sealed with the seal of God upon their foreheads. And that mark means that they too receive God's protection or power over the elements to lead people through the fire, through the elements, or whatever conditions may stand in the way, as the servants did. I will set a mark upon them, sending those of them who survived to the nations that had not heard the news concerning me. Basically all the nations, any nation, declaring his glory among the nations, meaning that they declare the coming of the Lord or God's presence. The word glory and presence in Hebrew are synonymous ideas. 
when the cloud of glory rests upon the temple, it signifies the Lord's presence there. And when he comes, he comes to the temple. And shall bring back all your brethren from throughout the nations. Brethren meaning that these two are now the covenant people of the Lord from throughout the nations, whoever they were, to Jerusalem, a holy mountain, the holy place, or the sanctified place, the place for the elect, on the Jerusalem level, says the Lord, as offerings to the Lord, on horses and chariots, as the Israelites brought offerings and pure vessels to the house of the Lord. Here again, linking the idea of vessels to people, which we saw earlier in chapter 22. People are trees, people are vessels. And these people go out and gather them up as offerings to the Lord, as it were. Because these people have gotten their spiritual act together, as we saw. They came around through the repentance process of that day and renewed their allegiance to the Lord. They became the clay in the hands of the potter. They were recreated or reborn, and now they're worthy as an offering at the temple to God. They're also worthy to see the Lord there. As the Israelites brought offerings in pure vessels to the house of the Lord. Of them likewise, I will accept men to be priests and Levites, because they're sanctified now, and they can minister to the Lord, minister as his priests as these others minister as his priests, the ones who gather them. Verse 22, And as the new heavens and the new earth which I shall make endure before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and name endure. In contrast to those whose offspring and names were cut off, in chapter 14, verse 22, I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants. Those who are of Babylon, or the Sodom and Gomorrah type of category, leave no offspring behind them. And that's a covenant curse, nor name. Their name is only a cursed name. But these have offspring, and it's an eternal offspring, as the new heavens and the new earth which I shall make shall endure before me, all through the millennium. It's an everlasting offspring of the nature of Abraham's offspring, as numerous as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of heaven from multitude. New moon after new moon, Sabbath after Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, all through the millennium, in other words, year after year, month after month, week after week, people of all nations, wherever they may be in the earth, shall come to worship before me, that is, at Jerusalem, or at the center place, Zion, in a pilgrimage, at least once or twice or three times a year, as they did anciently at the times of the feasts, Passover and Tabernacles. But in this case, going on all year round, not just on one particular occasion or two particular occasions, every month somebody will be coming, or every Sabbath somebody will be there. Maybe those people only come twice a year, but they'll be coming from all over, all the time, all year round. And they shall go out and look upon the corpses of the people who transgressed against me, whose worms do not die and whose fire shall not be extinguished. They shall be a horror to all flesh. So again, right to the very end, drawing the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Here the wicked are a remembrance of what could happen and what did happen, and a lesson to be learned. They go out and look upon the corpses of the people who transgressed, the transgressors or the enemies of God, the criminals and sinners, the tyrants, the prideful, mainly the ones of his own people, because they had the highest knowledge. They had the greater knowledge given to them. The false brethren, they transgressed against God the most whose worms do not die, whose fire shall not be extinguished. It doesn't say that they live in an everlasting hell. This is Gehenna. This is a kind of a Gehenna or a hell here, of which there was a tradition in Jerusalem anciently, when people were burned there in the valley of Gehenna and offered to idols, God Moloch. The fate of these people is kind of like that. People then used to go and look upon those corpses and see what a horrible thing it was. 
Isaiah turns that around and says that this is the fate of the wicked. But it doesn't say that they're going to be in the fire throughout all eternity. It just says that the fire shall not be extinguished. The worms do not die. It doesn't say that there is no end to their suffering. It shall be a horror to all flesh to remind everybody of what happens to transgressors and what a lesson that should be to them. All through the millennium, perhaps all through eternity, perhaps there are black holes out there somewhere where the wicked go. If we ever want to have a look at them from eternity, we can look at them and say, well, that's what happens to the wicked. Let's not make that mistake. And on that note, we end the book of Isaiah. Thank you.